Welcome to Lost in the Supermarket. You know, it's not very often that you meet somebody for a second time. And I want to roll back about 25, 30 years. Uh, the gentleman that you see with me, Chip Carter, uh, we both worked for the Chicago Tribune. And uh, Chip and I had some very meaningful conversations then about the food world. So, Chip, catch us up. What have you been doing for the past 25 years? A little bit. Uh, I, you know, I was syndicated with Chicago Tribune uh, for about 20 years. Uh, I was wrote a column for the Washington Post for a couple of years. Uh, went uh, with the AOL group and Huffington Post in New York as a writer. And while I was there, about uh, 14 years ago now, somebody handed me a camera and said, why don't you try doing the crazy stuff that you do with words with this instead? And in fact, why don't you go stand in front of the camera while you do it? So it was uh, a very dramatic career shift that began in that moment and over the last few years has progressed. I uh, made the decision in 2009 to come out of the more mainstream media and come back home to the country where I'm from, uh, I'm a preacher's kid. My dad was a, a farm preacher in Georgia and Texas, and we just moved from one little farm town to another. And in my late 40s, I started hearing the call to come home and tell the stories of my people, and that's what I decided to do. Uh, you and I first reconnected after the Tribune when I was with one of the trade publications covering the, the, the produce industry. And all of a sudden, there you were again as a keynote speaker everywhere I went. So there I was standing in front of you after coming off another podium or lectern going, Phil, I got some questions for you. <laughs> we were having those kind of conversations. So then a few more years go by. And about six years ago, I started my company, CBC3 Media, with the express intent and purpose of making a primetime television show called Where the Food Comes From. It's centered on the farm, but we go upstream and downstream from the farm to tell you all the stories, show you all the invisible hands that are involved in feeding the world and keeping us fed. There are We, we know there are billions of people in the world. In this country, only 1.5% of the population is involved in agriculture. When JFK was president, it was over 50. So now we know there are far few people feeding far more of us. The show's done very well. We premiered on RFD-TV in January of 22. We're now on every Friday night, 9.30 p.m. and 12.30 a.m. Eastern Time. Get that second broadcast for West Coast Primetime. Heading into Season 4, starts October 6th. We're also available on demand on the Cowboy Channel. And the big news is we just signed a new agency deal that's going to start taking the show and uh all four seasons by the end of the year will be available on multiple other networks everywhere streaming broadcast cable satellite and ott which when they told us we were going to be on ott during that zoom meeting i actually had to google under the desk to see what ott meant so it's everything that's not anything else is ott so it's a very exciting time we're telling some very dramatic and wonderful stories. We say we are about the business of farming, but we are equally about the heart and soul of farmers. So that's the that's the nutshell of the last 25 years, Bill. Well, congratulations. It sounds fabulous. And let's head to the farm. 
Yeah. You're on farms. You're talking to farmers all the time. We're in an era of, of disastrous climate change. Sure. Um, we know that with hurricanes that, that we're seeing all the time, whether it's in Los Angeles, whether it's in Florida, we're seeing droughts. Um, what's what's on the mind of farmers? You mentioned when JFK uh, was in office, how many farmers we had. Now we're down to this. I mean, are farmers just going to throw up their hands and say, hey, you know, we we can't make it anymore? Not ever or we'll all die. I mean, so that's, you know, I love, I love the, the idea of the well-meaning people who say all of our problems could be solved if everyone just planted a garden in the backyard. Well, we tried that once, and we call it the bad old days, and it had things like famine and starvation. Anybody who has ever tried to grow so much as a pot of tomatoes on their back porch understands it's not that easy. So, no, they're not going to quit, but you mentioned climate change. It was about six years ago, the first farmer told me, we think we're going to have to relocate the farm. We're either going to have to move north or south to keep our market window. So look, you know, Phil, from the retail side, everything's based on contracts and market windows. If you're growing cherries in Washington state, you've got a market window. And if you're growing oranges in Florida, you've got a market window. And it was about six years ago, I heard for the first time, we're going to have to move. And I've heard it with increasing frequency. We just made an episode. Uh, we spent a day at the University of Georgia with one of the, the world's leading climate change authorities, specifically on how climate change is impacting agriculture and will continue to impact agriculture. And I went in there hoping we were going to have this conversation where she, where, where she was going to share all of these wonderful projects that are in development that are going to save us all. We didn't get any of that, Phil. I mean, the whole day, I'm kind of like, she's holding back. She's saving back. She's going to give us the cheery note, the the cherry on top at the end to make it all better. And there was no all better. So there, there's there's a million questions and that's a million problems. And uh, fortunately, smarter minds than ours are at work trying to solve those problems. But we're going to see that lead to dramatic changes in production and relocation. You know, and people are kind of like, okay, so they have to move the family farm two hours north so what well that family's probably been there farming for 120 years that's where their roots are that's where their people are born and buried that's their lives so you're not just talking about going and replanting some fields a couple of hours north you're talking about changing your entire life and it's there there's no conceivable answer in the near future and in the short range Remarkably, what we're seeing on the research side is probably the greatest hope right now as we see uh, a lot of the seed companies and the researchers, private, public, uh, university, everything, are working on next new varieties. Uh, I've always joked, I've been joking for the last 15 years, all farmers want is a crop that will plant and harvest itself and grow without any water. That's that's all they want. Incredibly, researchers have made a lot of progress on those fronts. They're coming out with new varieties that are more heat tolerant, that are more drought tolerant, that need less water to produce. The answer will be in science, and make, make no mistake about it. The answer will be in the hands of the scientific community and the farming community 
And what has always struck me as remarkable about remarkable about that, we know um, a, a lot of more conservative Americans and rural Americans are somewhat suspicious of science, uh, and they they look at science with the leery eye. I do not know a single farmer who does not have implicit trust in science, <laughs> explicit trust and faith in science. The solutions are there. They'll be there. We're working on them. What are they now? Big question mark hanging over everybody's head and everything. So I don't know. Let's find out, Phil. Yeah, you're you're talking about new varieties. Um, mm-hmm. When I go into the average uh, supermarket today, there's probably about 500 SKUs in the produce department. Um, do we need 500 SKUs? Is, is part of the problem that you know we've we've created not the varieties from science that you're talking about that's more heat resistant and so on but you know i can walk in and see you know 13 different varieties of apples do we need 13 varieties of apples is that part of the problem well it's lovely to have them and i'll tell you what it's 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 researched that's given us all these new amazing grapes you remember 10 years ago when grapes came in red, green, or black, and that's what you had. And now they're cotton candy and jelly bean and everything else. That's just breeding. I think that's great. I think that kind of diversity is great. And I guarantee you, we eat a whole lot more grapes now than we did a few years ago. But do we need more varieties? Phil, do you like bananas? Yes. Love bananas. Bananas are good. Guess what? In a few years... You probably ain't going to have no bananas out of Central and South America. You know why? There's a blight currently in that country. Almost the entire banana deal in Central and South America is all planted in one variety, Cavendish. Cavendish, yeah. When you practice monoculture, that is when you plant one variety of one thing and only one variety of one thing, you leave yourself very, very vulnerable. If a new disease comes along, if a new pest comes along that likes that particular variety, you're in danger. And right now, in Central and South America, bananas are endangered. No one knows what to do. They're popping as hard as they can. They're just popping out bananas, and they will as long as they can. But that banana population is going to disappear. Now, the really incredible thing about that the short-sightedness of it is that already happened once before. You might remember when we were kids, there was an old song we sometimes ran around singing and you'd see it on the Three Stooges or something. The, yes, we have no bananas. That's because when that song was written, they had no bananas. The banana plantations in Central and South America at that time had been planted in a variety called the Gros Michel. Only one variety, monoculture, there was a blight, there was a disease, it wiped out the gross Michel. You know when you have banana candy or a banana popsicle or something, and it tastes like that banana flavor in your head, but it doesn't taste like a banana that you peel and eat? It's because those flavors were developed based on the flavor of the old gross Michel, and we got used to that for sweets and treats, and so they never changed it. But now they've replanted all of the Gros Michel with Cavendish. They've done the same thing again. And a hundred years later, we're looking at the exact same problem. So yes, we do need varietal difference. 
we might not need 15 different branded apples, you know, a Fuji and this and a that and the other, uh, but we must have variety in varieties in order to protect agriculture and protect crops. So when you look across the globe, Mm-hmm. Um, we have a lot of situations like the bananas. You look at what's going on with citrus greening, you know, in Florida and Arizona, destroying orange groves. Um, yet alone, you know, the ones that are still standing probably get destroyed by the hurricanes. Uh, but, you know, is is the problem... By, or by the developers. Yeah, or... Exactly. Um, or is the problem, um, when we look at monoculture, that it's just easier for for farmers to do that um you know or or the seed companies or whatever how do we move away from what you're describing which saves our food supply gives us better tasting products gives us safer products how do we move that we keep encouraging that diversity that is what started this whole conversation what the retailer ultimately decides to put on their shelves is up to them and certainly, as you of all people know, what decides that is what the people buy and what the people go to them and say they want. Most farmers in most crops are, are already aware enough to practice, uh, to not practice monoculture. I'll give you a perfect example. How about a Vidalia onion? Fantastic, wonderful. My fa- one of my favorite things and one of my favorite stories is the Vidalia onion. There's not just one variety of Vidalia onion. They plant 45 different varieties of Vidalia onion. You would never know to look at one, taste one, smell one, cook with one, that it was a different variety from the one sitting next to it. They do that to maintain diversity in the crop, to protect from diseases and pests. And also some of the varieties might bear earlier. They might come up, might be ready two weeks before a different one. And of course, in any season now, what a farmer is trying to do is stagger their harvest so you don't get everything at once and have to deal with it, but you have a flow that you can manage and supply the marketplace. So I think we're always going to need varietal development. It's a critical part of agriculture. Will it be part of our real world in the supermarket moving forward? I don't think so, but I think there are probably different pressures that are about to reshape the mix of the SKUs and what's on the shelf in our supermarkets. And the two things that are impacting that are going to be food miles, food waste, and and the public opinion that is starting to gather and is going to become a force as regards food miles and food waste. Whether we want to change the system or not, they're about to make us change the system. So I'm glad you bring up food waste. We we all know the numbers that, depending on who you listen to, between 30 and 40 percent of all of our food in the U.S. is wasted, um, and that's a crime. As we as we have, you know, people going hungry, um, it's a crime where we just have crops laying in fields because there's no workers uh, to to pick them and so on. Um, the the big question is how do we fix this? How do how do we you know, um, stop wasting food. Now, at home, we know we waste about half of what we buy. Um, one thing that's amazing, and we work very closely with a couple of wonderful organizations, Feeding America and the Society of St. Andrew, 
think everyone's heard of Feeding America. Society of St. Andrew is actually a gleaning society. And that comes from the old biblical term, the people who would go into the fields after the commercial harvest and gather whatever was left, and that's how they survived. Uh, that's what Society of St. Andrew does as a volunteer. Uh, and anyone can get involved, look them up, and give them a call. Uh, it's great fellowship and a lot of fun, and you're helping people. Uh, but we've learned through all of those associations and some of the shows that we've done, yes, at home we waste half the food we buy, but 40% of our crops that are planted are left in the field after commercial harvests. And the reason for that is retail. And the reason that retail does that is because of us. They've trained us to do that. We were harvesting cabbages uh, with Society of St. Andrew in North Florida. Uh, and they were beautiful, Phil. They were the size of basketballs. It was the most perfect cabbage I've ever seen in my life. And uh, we were with, with L&M, the L&M companies, L&M Farms out of North Carolina. This is one of their Florida farms. And these were the cabbages that were going to Feeding America and going to the food bank. Uh, I was like, why? What on earth? This is the most perfect cabbage I've ever seen. You know what the answer was? It's too big. Supermarkets, retail has a certain spec. They have a certain size. This cabbage can be no smaller than this and no larger than this. If they put out the big basketball-sized cabbages that were perfect, they set an expectation that the next time you're in the supermarket, you're going to have basketball-sized cabbages, and when they're not there, you're going to be disappointed. So that's partly retail's fault. That's partly our fault. They trained us that way. We shop with mm -hmm. our eyes. We eat with our eyes. We're looking for the perfect produce. No blemishes, you know, no drips, no runs, no errors, as, right. Right. <laughs> as they say. Uh, the first thing that we're going to have to do, and retail's going to have to help, and, and people like yourself can definitely and will definitely drive this message, there's nothing wrong with an ugly bell pepper. It looks just right. as good, it, it tastes just as good, it smells just as good, and it is every bit as nutritious. We're going to have to learn to take more of what we grow and do more with what we grow and then the the, the next thing that we're going to have to do it's the right thing to do for the economy it's the right thing to do for the ecology and again whether we think so or not or whether we even care about those things the public is about to demand change uh, especially in food miles food miles add to food waste but uh when, when people are sitting around asking questions like, why are we burning fossil fuels and taking time in economic development to truck watermelons from Chile to Georgia, where they grow, just so you can have a watermelon in January? Right. I never had a watermelon in January until I was probably 40. <laughs> they just weren't there. They just weren't there. You did not expect the full citrus spectrum in the summertime. You're bringing up you're bringing up a really important point, and that's something that that I've always uh, spoken about and urged uh, consumers and retailers to do. But with your help, may, maybe we can happen. When I was growing up, um, you only ate fruits and vegetables that were in season, mm -hmm. and when you when you had that, they were less expensive, 
They had more nutrition to it because of you didn't have to fly in, you know, that watermelon from yep. foreign country. Yep. Um, and they and they tasted better. How you know? I, I'd love your thoughts on this whole idea of going back to just eating what's in season. You know, Phil, iceberg lettuce, right, has no nutritional value, right? Right. Wrong. 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 Iceberg lettuce is chock full of nutrition when it's harvested and in the first few days after harvest. By the time it gets to the supermarket on the East Coast and gets to you, that has evaporated. These are living things. They're dying from the moment they're harvested. And as, as they continue, they start to lose that nutritional value. How do we change that? I don't know. We go in a, uh, I'm based in the Southeast. There's a major supermarket chain here that I won't mention, but it rhymes with Schmublix. So <laughs> in the summer in Georgia and South Carolina, you cannot find a peach from Georgia or South Carolina. Georgia is the peach state, I right. perhaps should point out. But right. South Carolina should be the peach state because the production of peaches in South Carolina dwarfs Georgia and is second only to California. But Schmublix made the decision a long time ago. Sometimes in the Georgia and South Carolina deals, there are problems. Like this year, there was a late freeze, caused a terrible blossom drop. Actually, what happened is they had too warm, an abnormally warm period ahead of what was projected to be the last frost date made all the trees blossom. They did get that last freeze, made all the blossoms drop. Every blossom on a peach tree, same as with most fruit trees, is what becomes a piece of fruit. When all the blossoms are on the ground, none of them can turn into peaches. So next thing you know, no peaches. If, 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 if our previously unmentioned supermarket chain has a contract for Georgia and South Carolina peaches and they're all gone, then they just have to come out and tell their customers, we don't have any peaches. But if they keep a consistent supply coming from California, then they will always have peaches. But you won't find in Georgia or South Carolina your Georgia or South Carolina peaches. That's a change that's going to have to come at the retail level, and that's a change retail is going to have to get used to saying, and the public is going to have to get used to hearing, we don't have that right now because of weather, because of, we, we're not going to blame supply chain issues anymore. We're going right. to have to redraw the supply chain and we're just going to have to reapproach how we look at food. Our current food system is a byproduct of a very wealthy society, which America once was the wealthiest in the world. We're not anymore. We're a society that has plenty of problems, plenty of economic pressures, and we're going to have to make some different decisions about how we're going to live moving forward and one of those things that we're going to have to decide is do we really have to have tangerines in the summer and do we really have to have watermelon in the winter those are just decisions they're going to start at the personal level i'm sure but at some point retail is going to have to get involved and go we can't do this responsibly and we can't do this sustainably the good news is every study and survey you says you that that you see shows that 80% of the millennial generation and below is looking to support companies that practice responsible corporate business 
and sustainable efforts. So they're going to make us do it. They're going to make us do it. We'd be wise to go ahead and be looking and studying about how we're going to do that, how we're going to answer those questions, how we're going to keep those consumers satisfied. But we're dealing with a more savvy consumer now who's going to understand we didn't want to transport this food thousands of miles to make sure that you had it. Instead, we wanted to support local growers and local farmers. And right now, we just don't have it. We will have it again. That's what we're going to have to get used to. Well, Chip, very well said, very insightful as always. Uh, Let's lock arms together and get these words and messages out there to the consumers and to the retailers. And thank you for joining us today on Lost in the Supermarket. Thank you. One last plug. Hashtag food, not phones. Look it up. Thank you. Thank you.